Rufa Zeki, thank you so much for joining us on Poured Over. Your fourth novel is just out. It is The Book of Form and Emptiness. Most readers at this point know you from A Tale for the Time Being, which was your novel from 2013, shortlisted for the Man Booker Prize. Lots of acclaim, lots of accolades, a terrific novel that we are going to cover a little bit in this conversation. But would you set up The Book of Form and Emptiness for listeners now? Sure. The Book of Form and Emptiness is the story of a young teenage boy named Benny O, who starts to hear voices after his father dies. The f- first voice he hears is, in fact, his father's calling out to him. And this, this happens at, at his father's funeral. He hears his dad's voice calling his name, and he's not sure sort of where it's coming from. And it's interesting because this is not an uncommon experience. In fact, it's something that happened to me when my dad died as well. I'd be doing something. I'd be, you know, I'd be washing the dishes or, or folding the laundry. And suddenly I'd hear him calling my name and I'd, you know, sort of whip around and, and then realize that it couldn't be him because he had died. So then this experience of sort of grief would, you know, would rise up again, and I'd have to kind of go through all of that all over again. And so this is exactly the kind of thing that starts to happen to Benny. But in my case, my dad's voice slowly kind of disappeared over time. But in Benny's case, the voices kind of proliferate. At first, it's almost like his grief has sensitized him. And so he starts to hear the things in his house talking to him. He starts to hear their voices. And, you know, these are just kind of ordinary things, like, for example, a a Christmas ornament or a a sneaker or a pencil or a piece of wilted lettuce in the refrigerator. And he's not quite sure what they're saying, but he can kind of hear their feeling tone. And so this is very perplexing and disturbing to him, obviously. And the voices kind of proliferate and they start to follow him out of the house all the way to school where he starts getting into trouble uh, on account of this. What makes it even more difficult is that his mother, Annabelle, has been sent to work from home, something that we are all familiar with now. And so she brings all of her work stuff home as well. And she also, again, as I think many of us have experienced, <laughs> indulges in a bit of retail therapy. So little by little, she becomes a bit of a hoarder. Benny's situation is quite dire. All of these things surrounding him and talking at him. And so he ends up deciding that school is no longer an option, and he finds refuge in the local public library. And the library is certainly a place where things talk. A library is filled with talking things. That's what books are. But, you know, in a library, books know how to stay orderly and speak in their quiet library voices. And so Benny finds it a very soothing place. When he's there, he meets a cast of the denizens of the library. Uh, He meets a Slovenian homeless philosopher poet uh, named uh, Slavoj, or he's also called the Bottle Man. He meets a beautiful young performance artist who makes these elaborate installations throughout the library's collection. He meets a children's librarian well, I'm not going to tell you what she she is, but she's a librarian, right? So she's kind of a superhero. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he meets something really still. Um, he meets a book. He meets his own book. And the book starts to talk to him. His book starts to talk to him. And so the whole novel is sort of set up as a conversation between this boy who hears the voices of things talking to him and the book, his book, who is telling his life story. So it sort of is like, which came first, the chicken or the egg? In this case, it's, you know, which came first, the book or the boy? And so in a way, they're kind of mutually co-creating each other. And the book is very witty. The book, <laughs> the book knows what's going on. Benny's mad. Benny, right, and rightfully, he's mad. His world is completely 
upside down, inside out and backwards. But I need to talk to you about the book for a second, because I love this idea. I mean, you've got a nearly 600 page novel that's narrated by a teenage boy who's mad at the world, absolutely furious at the world with every right. And the book that is ostensibly his life and, and literally starts out with, well, we don't tell stories from the beginning. We tell stories from the point that we need to start telling them. Your book opens right as Benny's dad is dying Mm -hmm. and his mother is starting to fall. Yeah. But I have to say, as I was reading the new book, the book of form and emptiness, I had a lot of moments where I felt like Benny was now sibling. And I, yes, I mean, now from a tale from a time being those two kids know each other and not just because they share you as their creator, but can we talk about that for a minute before we go back to more of Benny's stories? Cause there's a lot of ground to cover in the new novel, but I couldn't stop thinking about now as I was reading Benny's pieces. Yeah. They are siblings or certainly cousins. I think they're both young people who are struggling with very serious sort of existential and emotional issues and I think that there's a real parallel between them because they're kids who are struggling with these issues, but who find some kind of help and salvation in language through the written word. Now, in A Tale for the Time Being, is writing in her diary. And, you know, she she sets out to tell the life story of her 103-year-old great-grandmother, the the fascinating life story of her 103-year-old great-grandmother. But of course, because she's a teenage girl, she gets completely distracted by her own story and her own life. And so anyway, that's what she ends up writing in her diary. And in a way, Benny is a little bit similar in the sense that he's also struggling to find the story of his life. And he finds it through meeting the book and having this dialogue with the book. And the book is a very helpful book. The book really wants to help him and wants to help him learn to listen and wants to help him tell his own story. And so I think that this is really the the sort of the bloodline that runs through both of the books. And you talk about me as the creator. One point in my life, I too was a very existentially distraught teenager who found her salvation through writing and book, through writing and reading. And I think that's the kind of common heritage there. Can we talk about the structure Mm. of the book? It's a great idea. Benny alternating with his book, Mm -hmm. the book filling in gaps. And wow, Benny does not want to hear about his parents' sex life in the book. (laughs) The book keeps, frankly, I don't ever want to think about it, but (laughs) this is Benny's story and Benny's book and Benny's book has lots to say. How did you land on that structure though? Because it's really terrific. You know, I'm not even sure how that came about. At some point, I think it occurred to me that the book was a speaking object. And since the the premise of this was objects that speak, things that speak, it made perfect sense that the book would then be the narrator, or at least share the narration with Benny. I also think that when we are going through disturbing times, and in Benny's case, it's the grief around losing his father, you know, our memories are incomplete. And we tend to block things, we tend to misremember, we repress memories. And so the book, in that sense, is a more reliable witness to Benny's life. The book is able to help Benny remember the things that are important and remember, in particular, his connections, his deep love and connections with other people and ultimately with his mom. So those are the areas that somehow the relationship between Benny and the book, that conversation, that sense of dialogue sort of came from that. And I think too, that that's our relationship with books. 
The act of reading is a kind of dialogue. You're having this dialogue with the book and everybody who reads a book as a result reads a different book. So the book that you read is not the book that I wrote necessarily, and certainly not the book that somebody else would read. You bring your side of the conversation to that experience of reading. And in that way, we co-create the experience of the Book of Form and Emptiness. I think that's cool. I think it's great. Would you explain the title to listeners, please? The phrase Form and Emptiness is a phrase from a Buddhist sutra called the Heart Sutra. And the full phrase is form is emptiness, emptiness is form. And it's a key sutra in the Mahayana Buddhist tradition and in the Zen tradition that, that I practice. The term emptiness is a bit confusing and it has a very particular meaning in Buddhism. It doesn't necessarily mean empty or void as, you know, as we think of it. it. It has a slightly more nuanced meaning. The idea is that all things, all beings are empty of any abiding fixed identity. In other words, everything is in flux. Everything is ephemeral. Everything is impermanent. And that we are all dependent upon and radically interconnected with each other. Metaphor that works, I think, quite well to explain it is the metaphor of a wave in the ocean. Imagine the ocean, this vast ocean, and a little wave starts to form and starts to pop its head up from the ocean, and it looks around and it's like, Whoa, look at me! I'm a wave, right? I'm really somebody, right? I'm like not the rest of the ocean, I'm my own thing. And the wave is sort of rolling along, feeling very happy with itself until it starts to fall back into the ocean again. And suddenly it's like, oh no, it's losing its sense of a separate identity and becomes part of the ocean again. And so it's that kind of relationship, I think that the idea of form and emptiness refers to. When I was writing the book, what I was thinking about was this sense of radical connectivity. The fact that we are radically and essentially connected with each other. We rely on each other. We depend on each other. And I guess in a way, it's it's just another way of talking about love. Benny and his mom are both really lonely. They're both isolated for different reasons, but they're both really lonely and they don't know what to do with themselves almost. And there's so much compassion in this book. There's so much insight in this book, but also you have a very playful way of showing Benny's responses and Annabelle's responses. And Annabelle has a lot going on, but she really loves her kid. No matter what, she loves her kid. Her kid is her priority. She loves this boy, but she's stumbling because she's grieving and she doesn't have an outlet for it either. And then Benny meets a doctor who means well, (laughs) but she doesn't quite get him either. And then one of the voices he hears, he has a robot voice that he hears that's really if I'm correct, it's the robot voice from that Lost in Space show from a million right. years ago. Yeah, That's Danger right. Will That's Robinson. Right. That's it. That's it. And here's Benny listening to a spoon tell him that he's happy. And that's why he wants to eat with that particular spoon all the time. His mother doesn't know this. And here's this kid really struggling. And the adults don't really know how to help him either. That certainly was my experience growing up. Right? Uh, you know, I think kids live in their own world. They live in their own world. And, and certainly when I was growing up, it was not a parent's job to have sort of deep probing conversations with their children. We were kind of left on our own to figure it out. And the way that I certainly learned to figure it out was to tell stories. I 
kind of learned everything I know through books and stories and at first reading them, of course, but then writing them is also a way of trying to figure this out. And that's, I think, Benny's relationship with the book. Your books have always had a deeply personal connection to your story. My Year of Meats was your debut. We loved that book. We loved it when it was a discover <laughs> pick when it came out. 98? I can't believe that book came out in 98. It feels like you wrote it not that long ago. What gives it away is the technology. They were yeah. using faxes. <laughs> <laughs> we'll read around those parts. No one has a cell phone, but Jane, the protagonist of My Year of Meats, she's a television producer. She's working for a Japanese company but also trying to help the American meat lobby make sure that they're well represented on these television shows. The, the very premise, reality television wasn't quite yet a thing when you wrote My Year of Meats. And I remember people thinking, what, what is she doing? And this book is hysterical. If you love a good comic novel, you need to read My Year of Meats. But we've come a long way yeah. from Jane Takagi Little narrating her story. And you were a filmmaker for a while. Are you still making movies or are you focusing mostly on books? No, I focus entirely on books now. I loved making films and, and it was fun working in the film and television industry. Before I started making documentaries for Japanese television, I was an art director for horror films. You know, all of this was a lot of fun. I was a lot younger then too. But I think that things really haven't changed that much. Capitalism really hasn't changed. <laughs> In fact, it's just gotten kind of more intense. And that's the book, My Year of Meats, is really about the commercial sponsorship of, of information that we look at as real, as reality. And it's perhaps not as real as we think it is. It's about exactly that kind of manipulation. And so it was interesting because I recently, Stanford University, they chose it as one of their first year reads. And it was about 20 years after the book was originally published. And I went to Stanford and talked to the, the first year incoming students and realized that really things have not changed all that much. And the students were interested in that. But the one thing that had changed is that the students were more educated about it. They, they were more informed about these issues than they would have been 20 years ago. And so that was encouraging to me, even though the, the meat production practices hadn't really changed. And in fact, factory farming is probably worse than it, it ever has been. The young consumers going to be in charge of all of this soon were certainly a lot better informed. And that was encouraging to me. That's so good to hear. Murasaki makes an appearance in My Year of Meats, mm -hmm. if I remember correctly. That's right. Book of Genji, right? No, it was um, actually Seishonagon. Oh, Pillow Book. Sorry, sorry. Right. right. It was Pillow Book. So how much are you pulling from Japanese literature and your study of Japanese literature when you're working on your very contemporary novels? In that story, in My Year of Meats, I pulled quite a bit from the Pillow Book. The reason for that was that Sei Shonagon, the author of the Pillow Book, unlike a lot of her contemporaries, and we're talking Heian Japan, 11th century Japan here, right? She was really writing a kind of nonfiction essay. That was her genre. And since Jane, the protagonist of My Year of Meats, was a documentary filmmaker, I felt there was a kind of, you know, non-fictional affinity between the two women, right? Even though there was a, you know, a thousand years or so separating the two of them. Um, and, and so I thought of Seishonagon as kind of almost a sort of ghostly presence in the book. And then it, it was interesting because after that, I've done the similar kind of thing in all of the novels. Each novel has its own sort of historical figure who sort of, it reminds me of those old 
films of the, the Greek Olympian gods somewhere in Olympus, you know, above the clouds, peering through a hole in the clouds and looking at the mortals below, you know, and, and sort of moving them around like pawns on a chessboard. So in my second novel, in Oliver Creation, Luther Burbank, the plant propagator, a very famous plant propagator, was kind of like the historical guardian angel for that book. In A Tale for the Time Being, it was Dogen Zenji, the 13th century Japanese Zen master, as well as Marcel Proust. So there were two ghosts in that one. And in this book, it's Walter Benjamin, the philosopher. And I'm not sure exactly why I do that. I do have this idea that, that writers and books talk to each other. And we were, once again, it, it goes back to that idea of the dialogue or the conversation that we're all having with each other that extends sort of across time and space. So it makes sense to me to have these historical figures somehow informing the present. Well, you also grew up in New Haven, Connecticut. Your dad was a professor at Yale and you were reading canon. A lot of the books yeah. that are more representative, you and I are both mixed Japanese yeah. and Anglo, and there weren't a lot of us in books for a really long time. No, no. And I'm much older than you are. And there were none when I was growing up. I think I was in my 20s when Maxine Hong Kingston published, right, Woman Warrior. And I was in my 30s when Joy Luck Club came out. When I was young, when I was in elementary school and in high school, you know, I was reading, yeah, I was reading the canon. I was reading Dead White Men and really felt that that was what you needed to be in order to be a novelist. I really wanted to write novels when I was little. As soon as I discovered that there was this thing called a novel. I wanted to write it. But at the time, as you say, growing up in New Haven, Connecticut in like the 1950s and 1960s, right, with no role models at all, I really didn't think it was culturally or, quote, racially appropriate for me to be thinking about writing in the novel form. I thought that I should write haiku because haiku was culturally appropriate. And I'm a terrible poet. And I'm very long-winded, as you can tell, right? <laughs> So this was a bad genre for me. <laughs> it really was a disaster. It took me until I was in my late 30s before I tried to write a novel. My Year of Meats is really, it is laugh out loud funny, that book. Sometimes I think you don't get enough credit for being as funny as you are. Because Thank you. Thank you. Really, I had moments. And yes, the book of form and emptiness, there are very somber moments. And yes, we are talking about grief, but we're also talking about life and love and there's complications. But there was plenty of laughing in this book. <laughs> Good, there was good. plenty of, did I just read? Oh, I did just read that. <laughs> <laughs> good. Thank you. I appreciate that. Well, you know, this is something else that's interesting, I think, because when I was growing up, humor was also culturally off limits to me as a young Japanese girl. Margaret Cho wasn't born yet. So the idea that an Asian woman could be funny was just unheard of, like it never even occurred to me. We could be a lot of other things. We could be smart. We could play the violin well. We could be sexy. All of those things, that was fine. But we certainly were not allowed to speak out and we were not allowed to be funny. And so when I wrote My Year of Meats, I was happy to be able to write comedy as well. And I think too, that it was growing up in a predominantly white culture. I really internalized the Japanese racial stereotypes and felt that that's what I needed to live out. 
And so it wasn't until I went to Japan in college that I realized that I had any sense at all that I was American, that I was also half Anglo, and that as an American, I was allowed to be loud and obnoxious and funny and all of those other things, which I certainly hadn't been entitled to until that time. So once again, it's this idea of when you're mixed race, it you struggle to find the parameters that constitute an identity. It took me a while. Benny bounces back and forth between being aware that he's mixed and not. He just really misses his dad. Yeah. He really misses his dad. And that feels like a big change for me, where this next generation doesn't necessarily have to think about what they see in the mirror, which mm -hmm. also brings me to a book that you did that's nonfiction. It's called The Face. Mm -hmm. I read this a while ago. I read it when it first came out and I'm still amazed. You sat for three hours and I mean, Buddhist meditation sat for three hours looking at your face in the mirror, which to me sounds impossible. I've read the book. I still don't know how you did it. It was a painful experience. Uh -huh. Yeah, it was definitely a painful experience, but it was also funny. There were moments of intense boredom. You know, I think I probably dozed off at various points along there as well. There were moments when something would arise in my mind that was funny and I'd, I'd laugh about it. Yeah, it was an experiment. I needed some way to structure this essay. It was really a formal constraint that I imposed on myself. I couldn't figure out, the assignment was to write an essay about my face. And I blithely said, sure, I'll do that. And then when I actually sat down to do it, I was horrified because you know, what are you going to do? Right. And so I thought that that doing a kind of meditation and creating a timeline of observations about my face over this three hour period would at least give me a structuring device that I could hang stories on. So it was really a practical consideration you know, that started that. And, and, and there were plenty of times during the process where I really regretted it. I wish that I had thought of some other way of doing this. But in the end, it was a very kind of humbling experience, I think, to realize that this face that I see every day, especially now on Zoom, I see it every day and kind of don't really look, don't really think about that there's so many stories in it. And there's so many people inside my face. And that's what I started to become aware of. And so much really complicated feelings, old feelings. And so it was excavating that was interesting and seeing what kinds of stories would arise. And then at the end, when it was finally over after three hours, I remember I went, I was in New York then, and I went and got an iced coffee and went and sat in Tompkins Square Park. And it was a beautiful spring day. And I was sitting in Tompkins Square Park with this big old iced coffee. And I was just watching people walk around. And it was the most astonishing thing because they all had faces. Every single one of them had a face and their faces said so much about them. And I realized that every single one of them had these, these complicated relationship with their own image. And the face was sort of peopled by generation. And it was a very beautiful experience. It really sort of opened my eyes to the relationship that we have with our ourself. What's the relationship between your meditation practice and your writing practice? Mm. I used to think they were two different things. And they are two different things. I mean, in the sense that when I sit zazen, I sit and I don't write. You know? <laughs> I try not to write anyway. Sometimes I'm sitting and, and in my mind I'm writing, but at least I'm aware of that. And I, I try to just sit when I'm sitting. And the same thing when I'm writing, I 
try to write. Although sometimes I drift off when I'm writing and you know, don't get much writing actually done. So maybe they're not that different after all. But in some way, they're different things. But the two have just, I don't know, they've just become so much a part of my life now. And I guess I just don't see that much difference anymore between, between meditation. It's a formal practice, right? It's a formal mm -hmm. practice of awareness. But you know, so is writing. And so I bring, you know, just because I've been doing this for so many decades, I tend to bring that same mind to my writing and try to kind of relax into it and open my mind, open my senses, become aware of all of my senses and see what arises. And the difference is, is that when it arises and I'm sitting at the computer, I let it go onto the page. When I'm sitting on a cushion, I just let it go. The difference is whether you capture it or not, whether you hang on to it or not. You teach creative writing at Smith College and you have for a number of years. What have you learned from your students? Oh, that's a great question. I love teaching. I really do. And I think there's, a, there's an immediacy to experience when we're younger. So when I, when I work with the students, I see that. I see the, the immediacy of their experience sort of expressing itself on the page, if that makes sense. And... I find that very inspiring. I'm also learning other things though. I'm learning about how difficult it is in this highly mediated world that we live in to really allow your mind and your imagination to go, to be free. So much of what young people experience is mediated by another human mind. And I'm, you know, as somebody who made television, that was my job was to do exactly that, was to create realities that were mediated by my sense of what the world was, but not just my sense, the corporate sponsor's sense of what reality was. And so the amount of time that young people spend in unmediated environments, I think is increasingly small. And so that worries me a little bit. When a student manages to let go and to trust their mind and trust their imagination and write from that place, it's a breakthrough. It's really exciting. But it takes a lot of courage to do that because we tend to rely on things that we've seen packaged for us before. And so one of the first things I do is I teach my students to meditate because I think that for them to have a sense of what comfort in the intimate relationship with your own mind, to be able to hang out there and be comfortable is really important. That's where original, original writing is going to come from rather than derivative writing. So that's one of the things that I try to encourage my students to do. I know you answer this question a little bit in the new novel, The Book of Form and Emptiness, but Benny's book has a question that I'm dying to ask you because it's such a good question. And Benny's book says, what's a story before it becomes words? Right, right. I think the book has an answer, doesn't it? I think it does. Book, it does. Yeah, I think the book says, bare experience, bare experience. And I think that's a pretty good answer. You know, I think that's a pretty good answer. I think that's what we explore when we meditate. That's the terrain that we are hanging out in when we do the certain kind of Zen meditation, Zazen. We're hanging out in this space that's almost pre-linguistic. It's before words. It's before story. It's just the state of being. You can't stay there for long. Story arises almost immediately, at least in my experience. You know, I, I sort of get a taste of it 
I get a taste of what that might be. And then immediately a story arises. I'm interested in that. I'm interested in the way that story emerges from that experience. And we see Benny, and this is not to say that Benny has learned how to sit meditation, but we see him as the book progresses, learn the difference between what's real and what's not, and that the voices he hears are legitimate, that they're real, that his mother's experience is real, that his own experience is real. And that's hard for him at first, but the more he learns to listen, especially to the book, is where he figures out where he fits. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I mean, isn't that what we're all struggling with? The idea that our experience is legitimate. We live in a very alienating world. And I think our definition of what's, quote, normal is very narrow. And anything outside that narrow bandwidth of normal is looked at as aberrant in some way, diseased, sick, mentally ill, whatever. And that worries me because it means that we're always second guessing ourselves and we're always delegitimizing our own experience. And so I am trying, I think in the book to suggest that normal is a social construct and that if we widen our sense of what normal might be, that we'll all have a place there. And it's no longer something that needs to be medicalized and treated pharmaceutically or whatever our response is to what we perceive as abnormal. You know, I'm not anti-drug. That's not it at all. I think certain pharmaceuticals are obviously very helpful and, and necessary, but it's more just the sort of the cultural constraints that we impose on mental health and diagnosing mental health. I just want to kind of poke at that and question that and suggest perhaps that there are other models that can be followed. And love is one of them. I mean, love is the anchor that keeps Benny grounded. Love is the anchor that keeps his mother hovering. Yeah. So is love the thing that's going to save us? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that what it's community, to go back to this idea of emptiness, that we are all radically interconnected and that we cannot live without each other. It's simply not possible. And so as so much of our life is sort of determined by almost competitive relationships and sort of models of, of scarcity. So if I have something, you can't have it. If you have something, I can't. But I think that that's, again, a social construct. And that the sooner we learn to depend on each other and accept that interdependence, really embrace that interdependence, the better off we'll all be. Humans are social creatures and we, we need to live in that kind of community and not just with each other, but with the planet as well. And, and it's precisely, you know, the way that we, we separate ourselves from our natural environment and think that we're superior to it or think that it's there for our convenience. But we do that to our peril, as we can see, climate change and, you know, everything else that's going on. So these two, I think, are the, the areas that I was kind of playing with in the book and, and wanting to question and sort of almost enact in fictional form. Is there anything we missed? Is there anything that you really want readers to know about Benny and his mom and his story? Couple things. First of all, just to go back to the relationship between A Tale for the Time Being and The Book of Form and Emptiness. They really are related in the sense too that the cast of characters and the location of the library itself initially existed in an early draft of A Tale for the Time Being. An early draft of A Tale for the Time Being was set, half of the book was actually set 
in the library with those characters, with the Bottleman and the Aleph. And, and I ended up having to, for various reasons, I ended up having to discard that whole half of the book. But sometimes characters, they don't want to die. They don't want to just be tossed aside in a junk folder on your computer. And that's what happened in this case. They really, they came back and almost demanded a fictional context and a fictional world of their own. And in that way too, the two books have that kind of relationship. And the other thing that, that I try to do when I write is to introduce kind of randomness and serendipity into the writing itself. Because I think that in a way, you know, our, our minds are very programmed by the kind of stories that we hear in the media that we see. And so to try to break out of that is important to me. So I made a rule for myself in this book. The book is about objects that speak. And so I made this rule that whenever an object entered my life, I would put it in the book just randomly place it in the book and see what happened. And so when my former editor, Carol DeSanti, came back from a trip down to the, I think, you know, down to the islands, she came back and gave me a little snow globe with a sea turtle in it. So it was just at the point where I happened to be writing an Annabelle section and Annabelle's kind of a collector. So I gave the snow globe to Annabelle and it ended up sort of creating this symbolic language that filtered through the entire book. Fortune cookies was another one. I got a particularly good fortune that said, the world is a beautiful book for those who read it. It's such a great fortune. So I put fortune cookies in the book and sort of waited to see what happened. Walter Benjamin was another. Walter Benjamin, somebody knew that I was uh, writing about libraries and reminded me of Benjamin's essay, Unpacking My Library. And so that's how Benjamin got in the book. And then later I discovered crazily enough, that Walter Benjamin collected snow globes. It was like the objects started talking to each other. The things started to, you know, sort of communicate. And that was really fun. That was a fun kind of game that I was playing with myself as I was writing. I really hope that readers know how much fun the Book of Form and Emptiness is. Our plan is to make sure they know. <laughs> That's our plan. That's great. Ruth Ozeki, thank you so much for joining us on Port Over. The new novel is The Book of Form and Emptiness, and it is out now. Thank you so much, Miva. Port Over is a Barnes & Noble production. The show is available on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. Please rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts. 